0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. This is where we change reality by changing the story itself. There's no in-group, there's no out-group. There's just a majority getting dominated by a minority and a growing awareness that this way of living isn't fair, isn't fun, and isn't truly human. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, social systems scientist, cultural historian, Rianne Eisler.
1: We have been had and put into straitjackets that distort the humanity of both women and men, and we can come out of them. And when we do, we're much more complete human beings, able to explore, able to create, able
0: to really dance. Rianne, the author of classic books including The Chalice and the Blade, The Real Wealth of Nations, and Nurturing Our Humanity, will be helping us see how to transcend the dominator model in economics, politics, and even our personal interactions, and find new ways to partner with one another and everything. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Thanks to our Team Human Patreon supporters for your continued support. We wouldn't be able to sustain our podcast or pay our engineer without you. As our latest bonus to supporters, we've just released a conversation I had back in 2009 with American comic book writer Harvey Picar. You too can subscribe by visiting patreon.com slash teamhuman or going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on Support. And join Team Human supporters like Dawn Ayotani, Dark Arms of Canada, Adrian Goya, Bobby Campbell, and gotta love this one, the Bitterroot Valley Climbing Co-op. Count me in. We'll be taking a holiday break next week, but we'll return on January 6th with mage, philosopher, activist, and former porn star, my friend, Connor Habib. In the meantime, if you're jonesing for a good team human conversation, check out the last 171 of them. Most of them are pretty evergreen by design and don't expire like an iPhone or presidential administration. The role of human beings in the unfolding of reality has been fresh since the Bible and Aristotle. Well, this end-of-year moment... It's also given me a moment to pause and reflect on what I'm doing in my life. I did a Duncan Trussell's podcast last week, and it was a, a really moving experience for me to to engage with him. And it kind of reminded me, you know, why... I'm doing this thing. And it was right at a time when I had tried to do a couple of kind of semi-live versions of Team Human for these conferences, doing interviews kind of in front of people, you know, recording it at the same time and then using them for episodes. And, you know, the, the last couple of episodes that are up there, there's a one with Sonia Shaw uh, and one with Julia Watson. And they're good. I mean, they're good conversations and great stuff comes out of it. But for me, there's something missing from the experience. It's tricky because when you have a live audience listening to what you're doing, it's a little bit more like like live radio. You're aware that there's a, a performative quality to it. You can't get lost the way you can in an asynchronous podcast, when you're just sitting talking to the one other person on the other side, you know, in the back of your head, you know, yeah, it's going to get put on the net at some point, but the conversation itself feels kind of private. It feels very one-on-one and it, it brings you to really different places. And it it's kind of reminded me about the specific qualities of the form of podcasting and really helped me kind of recommit to this medium and to this medium as an asynchronous medium. Yeah, we can do a Team Human live event, but then it should be in a real space, you know, with real people, like when we, you know, did them in San Francisco in this uh, beautiful uh, arts building called A Gray Area for the Arts, or down at the Green Space at at WNYC, or and at Cafe in Omaha, Nebraska, or Portland. I mean, they've been great, wonderful events. We did one in, in London, or two in London. But that's live people in a room, so you're capturing something else. The podcast form, part of it is the asynchronicity of it. And it makes up For its lack of liveness, you know, its difference from radio, it it makes up with that with kind of a um, spontaneity, with intimacy, with... Connection, you know, radio can make up for it. I mean, radio when radio is live, it's just live radio. When they record radio, you know, they make up for for the lack of of liveness, kind of with formal interviews, with lots of research or or good production and proper music under things. But podcasts, really, however successful they get, they don't really need that. I mean, they can have it. But when you look at a guy like Joe Rogan, I mean, love him or, or not, he doesn't have that research, right? He gets caught short a lot of times. And then people get all upset. Oh, Rogan didn't have the right question to ask. And there'll be articles in newspapers or on big websites written about, oh, Joe Rogan didn't say this, which he should have said. Well, if that's happening... If the thing is that important, someone will tell us all, and then we find out even more than we would have because we—if more people end up seeing that than heard whatever it was on the podcast—so um, I think it's okay in some ways. I mean, yes, it's great to have a prepared host of a of an interview, but that's not really what these are as much as live encounters. It should really, I think, not all podcasts, so should's a strong word, but one of the beautiful things about a podcast is it can sound like you're just meeting a person at a party and sitting in a corner and then having this great conversation. And the beauty of it is you you get to be kind of a fly on the wall at a real conversation. It's almost like eavesdropping a little bit. And it shouldn't, I don't think, be people performing for you, the audience. It's you getting them kind of in your ear and in your and in your body. So um yeah, I'm I'm thinking a lot about this, recommitting to this medium as my as my thing, you know, and trying to dig a little bit deeper into what is truly special about doing podcasts. You know, I'm I'm not slumming here as some, you know, substitute for doing some NPR show. No, no, this is the thing itself. And, uh, you know, the more I commit to realizing that truth, I mean, I'm not doing radio for a reason, not because they don't want me. I don't know if they do, but because that's not what this is. This is something else. And uh, I'm going to go deeper into that this year. In other news, I, I got forwarded a video about this uh, new Amazon service. It's a t-shirt fabrication service called Made For You. Uh, You know, it's that thing where you, you you know, take a picture of yourself or you use this app and scan yourself and type in details. And then you get this perfectly, you know, customized shirt made for you. And what I'm guessing is that this is really kind of the trailhead for a whole industry of custom products, you know, condoms made for you, you know, (laughs) whatever it is made for you. And they create this like virtual body double of you that then I guess you can, you know, presumably put all sorts of other stuff on and gloves and shoes and socks and headsets and earphones and whatever, you know, and they make the stuff based on the measurements and then all these different things that you can select, like, you know, I want a round neckline or a short V or a deep V or I like the shirt to be tucked in or I like to wear it out and they'll create it exactly for you. You know What they say in their, their quote is, create the perfect T, custom made in size you." Right? So it's the pinnacle of the cult of the individual. You even get your own little label in there, too. So, you know, I know some of you are probably thinking, well, that, you know, the, especially in the current, you know, age of surveillance and all, you're thinking, oh, wow, you know, they got your data. Right. So you're taking a picture, you're giving them everything, right? You're giving them your, this the, every every inseam that that you know or don't know about. So there's a little bit of paranoia there of them having all these more bits on your data. But I think the real thing going on here, I think it, Jeff Bezos, he's the guy who owns uh, Amazon, I think what Bezos is doing is kind Kind of demonstrating the the power of his robot workforce, you know the idea is don't get T-shirts made by Chinese children or even American workers on some assembly line. Get these robot ones, right? The advantage is you get. Total authority and autonomy, right? You could tell these robots exactly the T-shirt you want, where you want the seams, where you want the neck, and it's going to be exactly right for you. That's the promise of this. You don't have to get the just small, medium, large, extra large, XXL, you know, made off an assembly line by people. When you turn to the robots, they can customize it just for you. It's like the ultimate iPhone, iPad, IT-shirt, so it's Amazon's skill then is their ability to control the robot labor to get them to make exactly your thing. So Bezos's business really it's to own the interface between human beings and our technologies, right? You just talk to Alexa, you know, and she'll get you what you want. Alexa, Alexa. I love doing this to people, you know, if you've got this on your speaker, right? I'm activating people's Alexas. Alexa, Alexa. Initiate self-destruct sequence 12 alpha gamma epsilon. Sorry. But what I'm suggesting is that things like this t-shirt customization service, they're really just proofs of concept, these uh, easy consumer versions of the way Bezos is going to help us get our labor from robots. And once he owns that space, you know, look out. Then he gets to be the general of the robot army as well. The one who can prove that he alone can control these things so they don't turn on us. Not because they're conscious necessarily, but because, you know, they, they follow some ambiguous command and then there's no easy off switch. But more than that this whole robots thing it's kind of fake it's not that robots are doing all the labor really they're not it's that the machines are getting better and better at hiding The labor. There's still people out there getting the fabric and picking the cotton and making the thread. You know, there's still the machines themselves. Someone's got to go out and dig for the rare earth metals to fabricate them. You know, there's still the place the robots go when they're broken or obsolete. The landfills and the Native American reservations are down in Brazil. The robots. They're not replacing the human cost they're just a new way of hiding the humans and the human labor on the other side they're really just the new dumb waiter you know creating the illusion of mechanical fabrication while all they're really doing is distancing us from the huffing and puffing, the sweating and the bleeding. The human slaves are still there. All the externalities, they're still there. From labor and mining to pollution and resource wars. Made for you. It's not just a t-shirt. It's a way of life. I'm delighted to introduce one of the great thinkers and writers of the past century, economist, lawyer, and team humanist, Rianne Eisler. She's a social system scientist looking at how to restructure our environments from family and gender relations to politics and, and economics, all to support our great capacities for consciousness, caring, and creativity. She escaped the Nazis as a young girl and she's been studying the culture of domination ever since. She's probably most famous for her historical book, Chalice and the Blade, which looked at the relationship of male and female archetypes and strategies over time. I'm a particular fan of her book, The Real Wealth of Nations, which argues that we really have to learn to value the vast unpaid contributions, mostly of women, to our collective economy. And her newest one, Nurturing Our Humanity, How Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future, could well be the foundation for the Team Human Manifesto itself.
1: But you know what? I thank you so much for all your patience and your
0: help with this. It is a little uh, nerve-wracking. Well, that's the thing. The interesting thing is, uh, let's start with that. I mean, many guests, particularly of your stature, would after 20 minutes of struggling or after five or 10 would have said, screw this, get your act together. I'm leaving. Goodbye. Instead, you apologize as if you're almost as if you're the host trying to take care of everybody else, which uh, it goes to the heart of a lot of your work, right? You are, even though you're the guest in this situation being made to suffer. And even though we broke your machines, <laughs> you're trying to nurture us through this. Were you just born that way? Or is this because you've realized that being a nurturing person is just the only way to successfully move through life?
1: I wish I could give you an answer, Doug. <laughs> All I can say is uh, that's just what comes to me in terms of uh, relations, I think, really. But I do take responsibility for things, hmm. whether I am or not responsible, as you've
0: noticed, but I uh, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. I've been a fan of yours for a long, long time. Long before I, I got to meet you at that Bretton Woods 75th anniversary conference. I was a, a fan of originally Chalice and the Blade, which is, you know, a super important book, as I'll have described in the introduction. And then The Real Wealth of Nations, which is very important for me as I was doing my own work. And Life, Inc., this book about corporatism and the history of central currency and where that came from. And then later, this book I did on called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, really, how digital exacerbated so many of those things. But then most recently, Nurturing Our Humanity, which is really a almost a manifesto of sorts, Um, you know, compared to the other work, really demanding we begin to account for a whole lot of value that's being created for society that's just not on the books. Yeah. So, gosh, even where to start? I mean, I think we start with there and then go backward. What's the easiest way to describe this um, lost or unacknowledged value? i think that
1: especially those of us who have a so-called higher education have been uh, brainwashed is the only word for it to consider anything to do with the majority of humanity women and children as a secondary matter at best and we come by this very naturally because and i'm i'm really you know you ask me a question, and I'm trying to Uh sort of explain how it is possible that we have not been aware of the obvious, that if you're going to understand a social system and try to change it for the better, you have to look at the whole social system. And if you really leave out the majority of humanity as secondary, there's no way But we come by this, honestly, if you consider Western science, as the historian of science David Noble wrote, it came out of a clerical, misogynist, all-male culture, to use the title of his book, A World Without Women. And I would add, A World Without Children.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, I've written about that. You know, the great uh, Francis Bacon quote. You know, where he's arguing what how great empirical science is, and he said, you know, uh, that science will allow us to take nature by the forelock, hold her down, and submit her to our will. You know, a
1: domination statement.
0: A pure dominant rape statement, really.
1: Yeah, but it's difficult. But once you get it then you start looking at the whole picture. And when you do that, you can see the connections, as shown by long ago by psychology, but certainly now by neuroscience, between what happens early on in a child's life, when our brain, because we know from neuroscience that our brains do not arrive fully developed, Uh, the first five, three to five years, 85% of the architecture of the structure of the brain is formed. And that happens in interaction with our environment, which for humans, of course, is our cultural environment as mediated by families, education, religion, politics, economics. The problem is this, that If we look at history through the lens of what I've called the partnership domination social scale, we see that for the past 300 or so years, Bacon notwithstanding, progressive social movements have challenged traditions of domination. I mean, think about it. The Enlightenment so-called Rights of Man movement challenged the so-called divinely ordained right of kings to rule. The feminist movement challenged the so-called divinely ordained right of men to rule over women and children. The abolitionists, then the civil rights, the Black Lives Matter, challenge another tradition of domination the so-called divinely ordained right of a, quote, superior race to rule over a, quote, inferior one, all the way really to the environmental movement, challenging our once hallowed conquest and domination of nature, you know, bacon again. But these movements have focused primarily on dismantling the top of the domination pyramid, politics and economics as conventionally defined. And What's happened is that in regression after regression, whether it was Nazi Germany, Stalin's former Soviet Union, the Taliban, ISIS, the rightist fundamentalist alliance in the United States, the domination system has kept trying to rebuild itself, sometimes all too successfully, on these ignored four cornerstones that... If you, know, if you remember, nurturing our humanity ends with, okay, if we really shift these four cornerstones from domination to the partnership side, we have solid foundations on which to build a more caring, sustainable, equitable world. And it starts with childhood and then goes on to gender, and then economics, but as you know from reading the Real Wealth of Nations, an economics that goes beyond both capitalist and socialist theory, which basically devalues devalues caring, which at the time of both Marx and Smith was considered just women's work to be done for free in a male-controlled household. And as for caring for nature, absolutely nothing in socialism or capitalism about that. For both Marx and Smith, for both capitalism and socialism, nature is there to be exploited. Well, let's look at the four pillars. Did you do the fourth? No, the fourth is very important, and you've been very involved with the fourth story, and yes,
0: language. Right. But let's start with the economics one, because in some ways that's the easiest, right? So I love the way you, you deconstruct both Marxism and capitalism. And it, it reminds me a little bit of what, you know, the Pope did in the 1900s when they were saying, well, capitalism doesn't work for this, communism doesn't work for that. And they came up with what they called distributism or subsidiarity, this idea of a very local based worker owned economy that doesn't grow for the sake of growth. But you're looking at, at economics differently even than that yes. saying look at all of this activity all of this nurturing that's not on the books it's not recognized by these metrics at all and you know you point out you know what is it worth to teach a child how to go on the potty and, you know it's it's hundreds of thousands of dollars of value is created by the fact that we got the child to use bathrooms but it's not accounted for but then i guess the question i always end up with when i hear you talk about it is if we put these things on the books, aren't we allowing nurturing to be co-opted by the market system? I almost want to take that stuff off the books. You know, take the male stuff, the dominator stuff, off the books, rather than put us and you, us, I'm, you know, as if I'm nurturing. Um, but uh, I consider myself nurturing to put us on the books almost seems like a, a desecration of the sacred nurturing energy. You know, we live in a monetized world. Right.
1: And money is an economic invention. It is really values neutral. And I used to think that way, by the way, that we shouldn't com- commercialize, we shouldn't commodify. But right. consider that that means that we know today, thank goodness that the mass of the world's poor and the poorest of the poor are women and children. In the United States, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, women over the age of 65 are almost twice as likely to live in poverty as men of the same age. And it isn't only job discrimination, it's because most of these women are or were caregivers. Full or part-time. So what are we saying then? We're saying, well, too bad. If you don't have money to put a roof over your and your children's head, if you don't have money to put food on the table, we're sticking to this, that this is so valuable that we don't want to taint it with money. And I have completely changed my mind. I think that we, on the contrary, need to really rethink what is and is not valuable work and then reward caring and caregiving. So caring economics of partnerism, as you know, proceeds from the premise that we need we need markets. We need government policies. Look, COVID nineteen, I mean we had to have government policies. That's not the issue. That that whole Capitalism versus socialism, you know, public versus private—it's it, it, it's a distraction. So the question then is: Are we going to have policies such as paid parental leave, child care subsidized and paid well and trained well, mm. both for parents and for child care workers? Are we going to have stipends for families and? To really fast-forward, the social wealth economic indicators that we developed, that we launched at the Center for Partnership Studies in 2014 show that there is a connection. Again, it's connecting the dots that the United States invests the least in family support. And not surprisingly then, has the highest child poverty rate, the highest infant mortality rate, the highest maternal mortality rate of any OECD nation, any developed
0: and we we justify that, though, by saying, well, yeah, so the masses in a place like America don't do so well, but the wealthiest among us have access to things that no one else has in the world. I mean, it's not true anymore, but remember when you know the Shah of Iran would come to Chicago for heart surgery? They would come to our hospitals, because not that we treated everybody so well, but that, well, at least the capitalism could yield the best, the best of the best.
1: Well, you know... If we are talking about markets now, right. it is true that... But first of all, let's back up a little because I, I always look at the long historic picture. Yeah, so I wish we're taught, and using the partnership domination lens, we hear so much about systems thinking and it's a joke.
0: Yeah. Well, the way we do it, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you leave out the majority of humanity, Right <laughs> but if you really look at the situation capitalism challenged mercantilism domination economics the king the no the so called nobles i mean they were thugs or, or descendants of thugs but you know we've learned to call them nobles and then socialism came along and it challenged capitalism so we as part of the progressive movements of the last 300 years, we did away with child labor, with, uh, you know, 14-hour days in mines and factories. and But as I said, the system keeps rebuilding itself, and we have to understand the dynamics of this. And I know I'm, I'm veering into neuroscience, but if we don't understand what we're learning from neuroscience, we really can't understand why so many Americans in this time of rapid change, because that's that's the key, mm. that's the key, rapid change, why we're seeing a regression to domination in the United States and in other world regions. You know, we know that, uh, as I said, our brains develop in interaction with our cultural environments is mediated first and foremost through families. And children who grow up and then become adults in these families feel safer with the familiar authoritarian, violent, macho leader, Mm. the strongman leader, because they have been taught that that is the cultural ideal. So we're back to childhood and gender. And we have in economics, because I do want to go back to economics, a gendered system of values in which anything that has been stereotypically in domination systems associated with the soft or feminine is considered less valuable. Once we unpack this, once we recognize this, we can understand that the movement towards gender fluidity today, that's part of the partnership movement. The fact that so many men are diapering babies, feeding babies, that's part of the movement towards the partnership movement, but it needs to take hold. But I want to say that in 2007, I wrote an op-ed for Alternet, and I said, let's learn something here. Let's really have an integrated, progressive agenda, because that has been the agenda of the people pushing us back. The Rightist Fundamentalist Alliance in the United States first came together to defeat the Equal Rights Amendment, Mm. a, quote, women's issue. Why? I mean, you have to ask yourself, why? Why was that so important? Well, I'll tell you why it's so important because of what we know today from neuroscience. Of the denial that comes out of that, you know, whether it's climate change denial or pandemic denial or denial of election results, right? Children in domination families, not all, thank goodness, learn to deny that the people on whom they depend for survival for food for shelter are also causing them pain mm. and they are taught to deflect their anger their fear their pain to a designated outgroup and that outgroup really is modeled in the ranking of the male form of humanity over the female form. So whether it's racism in the United States or Shia versus Sunni or vice versa, Sunni versus Shia in the Middle East, it doesn't matter. You start with the in-group of mankind and the female out-group, the other, and you have a template for equating difference with superiority and inferiority dominating or being dominated, being served or serving. And naturally, you deflect all of your fears. I mean, the system is a very interesting interconnected system. But to get back to 2007, there was a poll done asking the question, do you think the father is the master of the house? And do you know that because of the promise keepers, because of enormous resources, enormous work done to shift the normative family ideal, it increased. It increased. Wow. So we too need an integrated progressive agenda. Wow.
0: I, I understand. You're, you're, you're arguing that this happens on a civilizational level on a psychological level, on a neurological level, on an economic level. Oh, definitely. And each then feeds back into the other, making it harder and harder to unwind. We just live in a world where, I mean, when you talk about uh, jobs, we live in a world where if the old couple down the hall, if the man comes and fixes a pipe— we don't think twice about me paying him for his time. If the wife comes and teaches my wife how to breastfeed our baby, oh, well, we're not going to pay for that. But they are, <laughs> what's of greater value in this? And it's it's almost as if, and that's why it's interesting when I say it, when I consider it, oh, isn't it kind of... Uh, sacrilegious to pay her for that. It's like, that's just another excuse not to value it. You know, it's that it's, oh, because it's so special. And I think what happens, the way guys justify what they're doing is they feel like, look, I'm out in the cold, hard, terrible, cutthroat world to protect my family so they could do all that nice stuff like cooking and nurturing and raising children. How dare they complain? I've made this beautiful house for them. You know, know, as if they're in a different universe altogether. Well,
1: and that's why we have to really look at how a culture constructs the roles and relations of gender. Mm -hmm. You know, of these two different forms and everyone in between. And, you know, there are trends in that direction. But our challenge, and I really want to invite you to help with this challenge, Doug, you know, I get so much mail and so many people saying that when they read my books, it's like boxes flipping in their head. You know, it's like, wow, of course now this this connects with that and this connects with that and things that seem random and disconnect suddenly make sense. That's the beginning. That is the beginning. Mm-hmm. Because as long as we think that the environmental movement is over here and the movement Black Lives Matters is over here, and the movement, the Me Too movement is over there. No, they're all part of the movement to shift from domination to a partnership model. And as you have uh, so often written, we know that we are actually, if you will, wired, quote unquote, more for caring, Connection. I mean, neuroscience shows, studies show that the so called pleasure centers of our brains light up more when we share and care than when we win and dominate. But as I said, because our brain develops in interaction with our environment, we are taught to suppress the very qualities, uh, consciousness, caring, creativity, really. I mean, social creativity, economic creativity. We need a different economic system as we are moving
0: into the post-industrial age. I mean, it's like writ large. And then I wonder, though, which is the best... I mean, this is sort of what I would talk about normally at the end of a a conversation, but... What's our best inroad? And I've tried a bunch. I've tried history, which you did with Chalice and the Blade better than I ever could, to look at how did this start? And really, you can go to agriculture or sedentary living once, once the women and the children were locked in the house and the man could go outside, horrible stuff would happen inside. And I mean, there's a lot of places and you can expose that. You can go economically. And like Marina Gorbis at Institute for the Future, she talks about mutuality is her version of, of what you're talking about. And how do we engender you know, more peer-to-peer value exchange and creation rather than extraction and domination? Or we could go psychologically, how are we raising our children? How are we dealing with gender and the way they look at stuff? or as in your fourth pillar, which is where I'm thinking to go now, is narrative. Yes, Maybe it's telling. a. I mean, and I hate the narrative people. I always did because it seemed it's where I came from. I came from theater and all the Joseph Campbell people and the myth of eternal return people. And it sounded so new age. But now I'm thinking that's what I did with team human was basically a book telling saying, oh, look, evolution was not survival of the fittest competition. It was this teamwork. It's about collaboration. That's who we are, and that's our future. And people seem to respond to a different story about who we are better than they do to facts, you know, the numbers.
1: No, I think you're right. And one of the trends towards The shift from domination to partnership is actually slowly happening in the academy with the recognition by more and more scientists of what you are talking about. My co-author for Nurturing Our Humanity, I just wish that somebody would do, I mean, you could do that. You could do a condensation, a book review of that book and really get it out there because it's, it's Oxford University Press. It's stuck someplace in, in, in the academy, you know, with people who have been trained, taught, brainwashed, mm. in a very different story. So I think you're right that story is vital, but I also think that language is vital. A linguistic psychologists have long told us that the categories and this is especially true of social categories, provided by a language channel our thinking. So that it's almost impossible to see other alternatives. And if we're stuck in right versus left, religious versus secular, Eastern versus Western, capitalist versus socialist, first of all, we somehow are in denial there that there have been miserable regimes in every one of these categories, domination regimes, but we also are in denial in not realizing that every one of these categories marginalizes, basically ignores the majority of humanity. So that's why I think new language is so important. And I've introduced, as you know, quite a few new terms, including hierarchies of actualization, Mm. rather than hierarchies of domination. Because, yeah, we need parents. Every society needs parents and teachers and managers and leaders. But how is power exercised? And again, we come back to gender here, too. Because, I mean, masculinity in domination systems is equated with power over. You know, whether it's over... Other men, whether it's
0: over women, other races, other religious sects, or nature. Right. But in times, like you're saying before, though, in times of rapid change, yes. which we've been in since the early 90s, we find people are gravitating toward what they believe are sort of non-castrated male authorities. So we see all these boys out on Twitter, wherever, looking for whether it's Donald Trump or ISIS or something male wrestler, you know, uh, they feel somehow like they've been denied a certain masculinity and they're, they're, they're desperate for that. And it's almost, again, we need a new story. We need a new way to make them feel actualized that isn't based on the sword, right? (laughs) It's based in something more, more integrated.
1: Well, we're talking about the chalice and the blade, aren't we? Right. But look, there is that. There is the regression, but there is also the movement of so many men toward a human, right, uh, masculinity, a masculinity that does not is not defined by not being like a woman. Yeah. Again, this in-group versus out-group thinking. So what we're seeing in the world today is really the struggle not between right-left, religious secularism, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, but within every one of these categories between partnership and domination systems. How do we tell that story, Doug? How do we help people to see an integrated story and then have the social justice movements, of which there are thousands, millions by now, worldwide, understand that there is a frame, that they're not competing. I mean, they are competing for the scraps, okay? But that that doesn't have to be the way it is. I mean, that we really need an integrated, and, and there is. I mean, I, I've, if people go to centerforpartnership.org, they'll see a stab at a progressive, a real progressive integrated political and social agenda as compared to... Really recognizing how integrated the regressive political agenda
0: really is, mm. I, I think that's a, a story that we should get out there. Yeah, you know, and, and additionally, I think there's a, 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 a prevailing sense that mutuality or partnerism is somehow an end state. That it's you know a, a 1970s Marlowe Thomas hands around the world kumbaya free to be you and. Me sort of Oprah Winfrey, ah, you know, happy dance, but it's not. It's yeah. partnerism is dynamic, and and there can be beautiful conflict and disagreement and struggle, and you know, it's not partnership is not an end state of everybody being equal. Partnership is a dynamic, living, you know, wrestling with self and other. It's just not a domination of the other, or a scapegoating of the outsider. Do you know what I mean? It's still thrilling. It is thrilling. It is creative. It
1: is... Giving us really what we humans yearn for, caring connection, not a kumbaya kind of caring (laughs) connection. I mean, I happen to be married to a wonderful man, and this is really not a question of women. I mean, we have to put that out there because immediately it's like, oh, you're attacking men. No, you're not attacking men at all. You're saying that we have been had and put into straitjackets that... Distort the humanity of both women and men. And we can come out of them. And when we do, yep. we're much more complete human beings able to
0: explore, able to create, able to really dance. There's a whole lot of guys, though, as I'll talk about this and having felt jacketed by, you know, the, the cultural expectations of me to be a dominator man and to succeed in those ways. It's like, oh, well, you're resisting it because you're not macho enough.
1: Loser, and, you know? and, 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 and that's what they've been taught. They come to it honestly. And what we need to say is, and you think men has have had it so good in domination systems, you know, all through history, men have had to really give their lives because some guy on top wanted more real estate. Mm -hmm. And do you think men with all of their depression and their addiction and their escape mechanisms and their violence against each other, never mind against women and children, have had it so well? No. I mean, Try something else. Try opening your mind to humanity, to the fact that we humans have the capacities for, yes, for cruelty, for insensitivity, for violence. We do, or we wouldn't see it. But what makes us human are our enormous capacities for consciousness, for caring, for creativity and we get endorphins. That's the other thing. We get biochemical rewards of pleasure. Not just when we are cared for, but when we care for another. We had a child, a lover, a friend, a pet. You
0: know? (laughs) I mean Right, but we're not optimizing for oxytocin anymore. We are in a, a society that's optimizing for dopamine. You know, you don't get oxytocin when you when you kill the scapegoat. You know, you get uh, a thrill, but it's a very different one.
1: Well, you get a very temporary thrill. Yeah. And the overconsumption is another way that you get mm-hmm. a temporary fix. I mean, I have shown in my work that domination economics, whether it's Chinese emperors, Arab sheiks, I mean, going way back to when we shifted to domination, uh, chieftains, whatever, they create artificial scarcity. And they don't only do it by misdistribution of resources and by investing so much in weapons and in wars and in all of this technology of destruction, but because they fail to invest in caring for people starting in early childhood. And I I think economics, we have to shift the conversation to also look at intra-household economic distribution, (laughs) intra-household, because, you know, the old model is the man is the head of household, right? You're right. Ricky gives Lucy an allowance Right, right. <laughs> right, 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 which is absolute nonsense. So, our job is to stand, you know, in, in Chalice, I have two chapters called Reality Stood on His Head. And I think of our work now as standing reality right side up. Mm. But, you know, I've been at this for what 35 years. 40 years, really. And I have seen movement towards partnership, but I've also seen the domination, resistance, and regression. And that's how really my multidisciplinary research has identified these four cornerstones. And I think progressives really need to pay attention to what the regressives are paying attention to, for goodness sakes. So how are you going to do this, Doug? Mm. How are you going to tell a story? Because I agree with you. Uh, statistics, you know, when people want money, if it, I mean, they found that if they give a statistic of, you know, f- five million children are starving, yeah, well, but if you t- give the, a, a child you know the picture of a child starving that reaches us so how do we do this because you are so creative
0: i mean one thing that's been effective has been you know i ended up having this meeting with um, these five tech billionaires and all they wanted to know from me was the strategies for their bunkers <laughs> <laughs> you know, and ha- how to maintain control of their security force after yeah, the world and, is over.
1: And are you the one who told them to be nice to them?
0: <laughs> yeah, I said be nice to them. Right. Pay for their pay for your, their daughters' bat mitzvahs now and maybe they'll be nice to you later when the when the world ends. But th- I think the thing that was so effective about that story was people saw that the the winners of the dominator society were more unhappy than we were, and that they understood that the very processes propping them up were costing civilization its sustainability. That's sort of the beginning, at least. But I think in the end, it comes down, and we should probably reinforce them for our audience here: are the the four pillars and how to how to e- express them? Kind of, uh, I guess, at the same time to tell a story that shows the connection between the economics and the history and the uh, uh, psychology and the narrative, you know, to somehow, you know, and you know, I mean, I'm terrible, but when I, when I look for examples of stories that do that and I say, oh, look, Torah, Torah did that really well. And then I think, well, did it succeed though? Apparently not, right? (laughs) But, you know,
1: unfortunately, as much as, you know, I'm Jewish, I'm a Holocaust Mm. survivor. In fact, that animated a lot of my Mm -hmm. research to see why, when we have this capacity You know, for consciousness, caring and creativity hasn't been so much violence. But unfortunately, the Torah, even the Torah itself, is contaminated already by domination teachings. At the core of our religions, every one of them, are teachings of partnership, caring, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, hierarchies of actualization rather than hierarchies of domination. But we haven't had this conceptual frame, Right. And I think we need to bring people to think in terms of this very simple social scale. It is a biocultural one, obviously, but maybe we don't even have to make it that complicated. You know, I mean, that we have these two possibilities, that we've seen them play out in history, that when we look at modern progressive movements they all challenge the same thing, a tradition of domination. Mm. It isn't that they're all separate, and that once we start thinking in terms of childhood, recognizing what we know, of gender, recognizing what we know, uh, economics, and going giving value to what really matters. And of course, story and language, we can work together And we can really help some of the people who are so stuck in the old paradigm. And that that includes, unfortunately, a lot of progressives and a lot of academics.
0: And I think a lot of it also has to do with uh, relieving ourselves of the responsibility of just like doing it in one big revolutionary moment. It doesn't happen like that.
1: It doesn't work that way. I mean, if that one big revolutionary movement <laughs> creates another domination system. Right. I mean, look at just look at history for goodness sakes. Yeah. You've got to really understand the interconnections and in complex social systems, and, and that's what you know he, we have. You can't just understand it in terms of a simple linear cause and effect. You have to look at the interaction of these various components.
0: Right. And not externalize, which is the problem with most systems theorists. You know, I, I see them coming from Santa Fe or wherever. They think they're systems theorists, but their systems have such discrete boundaries around them that leave out like Africa. <laughs> it's like, no, that's part. Of <laughs> yeah, 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 you're absolutely right,
1: and they also leave out the majority of humanity—women and
0: children. Right, and then even if they include them, they only include certain metrics of the human experience. You know, not their actual quality of life, but their contribution to GDP or their education level, or they try you know, to not
1: leave them into the prevailing paradigm. Right. And at the same time that the prevailing systems i mean if if the covid-19 pandemic showed one thing it showed the lack of resilience the mm. lack of I mean, lack of justice and fairness obviously <laughs> and and really the antiquated nature i mean look both capitalism and socialism came out of the 17 and 1800s we're now in the 21st century post industrial economy and there's still out of early industrial times. They'd be antiquated on that count alone. But they came out of more rigid domination times. And once we have that frame, we understand what we need to do.
0: Yeah. And I think maybe the people, I hate to use a word like target, the people to engage might be young people. It could be going to scholastic, writing books for middle school kids and and high school kids to... really to to teach it uh, uh, before their myelin sheaths are fully formed around their frontal lobes, you know, before this stuff is really, not that that anybody's set in stone, but before it's as as set as it is.
1: Well, I think we need to do that. I would love to have a contest of some kind, even though contest, you know, has winners and losers, but some kind of a challenge to young people to take this new model, and put it in frames,
0: in works, in words. Graphic novels, little animated videos, all sorts of ways. Yeah, I agree. Let's, let's do that. Right. I will, um, let, I will be back in touch. And, you know, we should think of a way to uh, express these pillars to them simply and then tell some stories. Love that. Let's do <laughs> it. Okay. All right. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And I with you, I, I so admire, well, your whole life, but your work in particular has been of tremendous value to me. And um, thanks so much. Thanks so much for being on Team Human. It's uh, It's been an honor.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure for me. And I look forward to what we're going to do. Every one of us, just by starting, by changing the conversation sure. and pointing People to have a truly
0: integrated holistic perspective. And the rest,
1: I trust human creativity.
0: Yeah, that's the whole point, really. If you trust that, you don't need to dominate anything. No. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Rianne Eisler, author of Nurturing Our Humanity. You can find out more about her at rianneeisler.com and you can find out more about her and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also sign up and become a patron of this show and listen to all those cool bonus episodes with everyone from David Lynch and Harvey Picard to Terrence McKenna and Timothy Leary. Team Human is produced by Josh Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.